Welcome to Think Like an Owner, a show exploring how the most ambitious CEOs grow great companies. I'm your host, Alex Bridgman. Each week, I dive into the strategies and tactics that build transformative businesses with the operators doing it firsthand. You can learn more about the guests and the companies they are building by visiting us at tlaopodcast.com. There, you will also find our weekly newsletter that further analyzes how companies are finding success today. Lastly, if you enjoy Think Like an Owner, please share this podcast with a peer and leave us a review. I'm glad we could have Keith and Ryan for this third episode in our launch series talking all about due diligence post-LOI. Ryan is a repeat guest from last year. So last year in the Trilogy Search series, he was the second guest and talked all about his experience in the Navy, bringing that over to his pretty quick industry search into a radiation detection company. And that's that's episode 110 if you're scrolling through iTunes or Spotify. But um, really glad we could have him joining Keith to talk through you know, post-LOI process and lots of good pieces of information or insights and wisdom uh, that both shared. Yeah, I think it's a great episode, but also really excited that it's part of this series and, and appreciate you putting it on Alex for us where you're taking a searcher from sort of start to, to hopefully finish where they're in the seat as CEO. And so just, it's exciting to be at this point where we've sort of started our search and, and built industry theses and now to experience Ryan and, and partnering up with Keith to go through actually doing diligence on the company that he may end up buying, which, which spoiler alert, we know he did buy since he already did that episode with you, but I think it's great to, to sort of be at that point. And I'm excited about the future episodes to keep building that, that muscle and that launch potential for these CEOs. What I really like about this episode is the frameworks that Keith and Ryan both talk through that help simplify and prioritize what can really be a, a, an overwhelming process. You know, it's like the the dog caught the car. You've got the LOI signed, and now you've got to manage your investors, a group of service providers, often your own interns, your own tabletop diligence process. You know, how do you prioritize? and move through all that work while, as they both point out, keeping your sourcing operation going because deals sometimes um, don't go all the way to the finish line. And I think there's just a, a, a huge number of very tactical examples and pieces of advice uh, here that hopefully folks can, can take away. Yeah, this is a great one. I'm glad I got to do it. Thank you both for joining the podcast for an episode on organizing diligence and closing and all the different steps in between. I think a good place to start would be talking about at a high level, what is the objective and goal for diligence? What does that look like? What are the different components, areas of focus? What is the high level goal for diligence? And Keith, perhaps we'll kick off with you. Yeah, no, sounds good. I think diligence at, at a high level is an exercise in underwriting, right? It's an exercise in understanding why a business will grow to be the scale needed to hit your base case returns. So in other words, like from today, how much more do you need to grow revenue and at what level of profitability to generate a specific return given the price you're paying for a business, right? The question is how many customers you need to win? Where will you win them from? What does that mean relative to the market opportunity? And that's what, that's what diligence is seeking to accomplish, to underwrite the future of that business. And I would say this is it's distinctly different from what I would call business analysis, which sometimes people confuse with underwriting. Business analysis sort of takes a snapshot of the company today and sees if there are any red flags. It's a moment in time view of churn, right? Is, is churn is 95%. Okay, that's a number, but without a double click, 
that might hide certain facets of how new customers are behaving relative to old customers, which could have implications for your market opportunity or the value proposition. And so business analysis is sort of, hey, what does the company look like today? Is there customer concentration? Is there churn? How many new customers do they win over the last three years? Diligence is the flip of that. It's the future. How much of this is, is do we believe tells the story of what will happen under our ownership rather than just what has happened in the past? Ryan, I really liked your thinking around North Stars, which kind of kicks off of Keith's point around focus and outlining the key questions to ask during diligence. We'd love to hear some more depth on your thoughts for North Star for diligence. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I, I agree with everything that Keith said. I think from a searcher or CEO's perspective, another goal of diligence is that you are managing an investor group who oftentimes has similar questions, but there's a, there, can often, there can also be a, a wide range. And so part of the goal of diligence is answering those questions effectively so that you can bring the group along in the investment opportunity. And, you know, marrying what Keith said with what I just said, my experience from diligence is that it can oftentimes feel overwhelming because there's so much, right? If you asked your 10 investors and each of them has 10 questions, that's a hundred things that you could go after. And so I think you need a few focus areas to kind of ground you on how you're going to organize and execute. And, you know, I can, I can lay out some of the things that worked for me. One of them was, I'm a big fan of this adage that search fund investors individually are often wrong, but to collectively are, are not often wrong. And so for me, asking questions of the investors was an, was an opportunity to extract themes so what were the top themes that I heard across those 10 folks? And then grounding myself, those are the, you know, the top three key issues to diligence. They won't be the only ones, but those are the priorities. I like the framing of past versus future questions and how many of each or how, where, like, where do you direct focus on, on either side? Is there, how do you kind of get to the point? How do you decide where, you're going to focus your diligence efforts on both sides, that business analysis and diligence. How do you kind of figure out and suss out what are the kind of core two to three things or maybe more that are actually truly important and really matter in this across, you know, conversations with your investors versus your own work? I think you nailed it there, Alex, that there are going to be only a handful of things that matter, right? And so what you're trying to do is is validate a set of assumptions that you believe to be true. That's not having a perfect model or a crystal ball. That's really trying to figure out the two, three, four things that'll really move the needle and have high confidence that those things will be true. And so, as Ryan mentioned, when you get a, a series of questions from your investors up front, those can probably be broken into key themes. And I think a lot of times investors are asking those questions based on their experience and based on heuristics, which are pretty good. They have a lot of experience doing a lot of deals, but it's, it's important to remember that for each individual opportunity, those questions might be different, right? That's one of the dangers of checklist diligence. If you have a checklist that's based on some other company or some other industry, you could, you could miss something very critical for this specific opportunity. A checklist that was very helpful for a software business serving the sales enablement market is not going to be super helpful for Ryan diligencing a dosimetry provider. So you have to remember like, 
you're just trying to key in on those two to three or four things that matter. And the investor questions that you're asked can help guide you there. But you need to remain flexible because as you learn the answers to some of those questions, the two or three or four things that matter might shift. You might learn something that's, oh, this matters more than I thought it did, or this question matters less than I thought it did. So that flexibility is really important as you sort of work your way through the diligence process. If I were to if I were to tie some of those things specifically to my deal, radiation detection company, there were sort of three North Stars in diligence that helped me organize what mattered. The first I touched on, which was what were the top three themes coming out of investor questions, and those ended up being key bets. And for RDC, one of them was there was some technology disruption happening in our industry related to a transition from a legacy technology to a digital one. Every single investor I spoke with had concerns and questions about that. And so that that really crystallized as a key thing that I needed to diligence. And and it turns into a key bet in the in the sense that you turn it into a statement of we need to believe that RDC will be able to secure a technology partnership to participate in the digital transition happening within the industry. And so once I was able to answer that, that that became a key bet. Another framework that was really helpful is what I know Keith refers to as what do you need to believe, right? So you start with your return profile in mind, whether that's a 30, you know, typically a 35% IRR, and you work backwards to say, what needs, what do I need to believe I can do with this business over a given period of time to achieve that outcome? And at RDC, that was a combination of continuing to grow at historical rates, being able to execute some pricing optimization, and then a, a handful of small acquisitions. And when you lay all that out on a piece of paper, you can look at it and say, okay, I'm going to go diligence these three things. Do I think we can continue to grow at 7% a year? Do I think we can achieve this pricing increase? Do I? What's my level of confidence that we can get these three deals done? And then the third was Pacific Lakes 4 plus 1 framework, which is an industry framework that identifies the key drivers of, of an industry. And I think that's where you can identify, okay, I got a lot of confidence around what is the market size. I've got a lot of confidence around the criticality. There's a big gaping hole when it comes to the business model or something like that. Rather, rather than go into too much detail, that was another helpful framework for me on how to organize diligence. So if you combine all those things, that leads you, you know, that that results in maybe six to seven priority lines of effort within the diligence process. I think Ryan made a really good point there when he was sort of laying out the frameworks he used and giving his his own personal example. Those key bets, those what you need to believe, are very specific, right? I need to believe that I can grow 7% a year. I need to believe that I can get X percent price increase. I need to close Y number of acquisitions. And that sort of is, is painting a picture of the levers that in your base case, you will pull to hit that, that uh, you know, goal return, so to speak. What is not that helpful in diligence is sometimes you see folks approach it with, I believe the market will grow. I believe the company will retain customers. And I believe we will continue to beat our competitors and RFPs. Oh, all those things do need to be true. (laughs) But as you go through the diligence process, it's really hard to say, okay, I now have the level of confidence to say that this is enough market growth to help me hit my base case return. This is enough 
value proposition that should persist throughout the whole period, et cetera. So I thought that was a really good framing the way Ryan had it. The only other thing I would add there, and, and, and it sort of gets lost in the course of diligence, but there are a lot of paths to your base case outcome. So Ryan ultimately underwrote, I'm, I'm making up the numbers, Ryan, 7% annual growth of new customers with 2.5% price increase and six acquisitions. But he also might've been able to get to the answer with 5% growth, but 6% price increases and 10 acquisitions, right? And so as you go through the diligence process, you're also figuring out how sensitive the, the, the model is, the cases, the businesses to these various levers, and you're building different levels of conviction for each one to build the mosaic that is your base case. Yeah. And something Keith, you taught me when I was doing my deal and running diligence was that really great, what you need to believe statements are the combination of a few and statements, meaning these one, two, or three and things need to happen, plus the addition of a handful of or statements. So if we do these three things, plus one of these six things, we're going to hit our outcome. Yeah, that's the, the and or framework is a sort of a great check as you're approaching the end. You say, let me just put in plain English how I'm going to get to my base case. And if you just keep saying this and this and this and this and this and this, your degrees of freedom are pretty low <laughs> and you're sort of trying to you know, hit the bullseye, so to speak, versus if it's this and this or this or this or this, you have a lot more degrees of freedom when you're actually operating in the business. Yeah, a friend of mine, similar concept, but called it multiple ways to win with ideally more being better. How many ways can this deal win through growth, debt pay down, some acquisition or M&A process, new product tech? How many ways are there for me to win in this deal? Which sounds very similar and, and rhymes with, with the th concept you're outlining. I think, Keith, one thing you said earlier was that those key questions, those key bets and areas of focus may change over time. And it's important to have some flexibility as you learn more to be able to ask questions about those areas of focus and maybe they have to shift here and there. Are those, are those dynamics at odds in any way where you want to focus on certain areas, but you're constantly trying to, you want to check and make sure those are the right, are those efforts at odds at all? Or do you feel like they're, they're some symbiotic in some ways? I think they're symbiotic in some ways. I think to Brian made the point earlier, there's a lot of stuff you could dig in, dig into, a lot of stuff you can diligence. And so you have to have a hypothesis about what are the things that matter most to the outcome of this company and start pressure testing those. And that could be on new customer acquisition, that can be on churn, that could be on pricing levers, that could be general operational scalability industry telling a lot of different things you can pressure test, but you'll have a hypothesis as to what the two, three, four are that matter the most. And as you dig into those, you should, should almost think about as having strong opinions loosely held. And as information comes back that either something else is more important or whatever you were looking at is not important, being able to have the mental flexibility to, to promote and demote certain pieces that you were, you were otherwise doing. Or if you get a bad answer on one of them, and yet it's still an important lever saying, this is not the deal for me to do. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Ryan, one thing you've talked about, kind of switching gears to pipeline management during diligence. One thing you've talked about was when you found RDC, you focused a lot of your effort on 
working on the deal for RDC and less effort on pipeline management. And I've heard it both ways in terms of focus on the deal at hand versus manage your pipeline. I would love to hear from your experience and then Keith with you know, kind of your breadth of experience across multiple deals, what are some best practices around pipeline management while in diligence with a particular deal? Yeah, I'll, I'll leave it up to Keith to kind of uh, offer a best practice, but I can tell you from, I can tell you my experience. When I found a radiation detection company, I stopped all pipeline activity. You know, I got lucky because RDC closed, but if it had not, I would have been three to four months sort of behind the ball. That that flywheel that I had been spinning would have stopped. So I think I got lucky from that perspective. So I, I do reflect back and my advice to searchers is that you need to be thoughtful one way or the other. Don't do what I did, which was just sort of forget that you're still searching <laughs> and focus on the deal. I imagine there are cases to be made on both sides, but I think the point is be aware that that can happen and just be thoughtful about your trade-off about whether you do devote continued time to a pipeline or whether you, for some reason, decide to sus- suspend pipeline activity and and really focus on the deal. Keith, what, what are your thoughts about best practices on that? Yeah, we've sort of come down on the, the side of things that it's best practice to keep your pipeline running as, from LOI until almost close. And the reason for that is as a, as a searcher, you spend all this time building a pipeline, building that momentum, building that flywheel. And to Ryan's point, if you put it on pause, even just for a month, two months, to get that, that pipeline going again, takes another two, three, four months to get back to sort of full velocity. And given that time is your most valuable resource as a searcher, losing that time can be very painful if the deal doesn't close. And if you think about the the data, the, the frequency with which people close on an LOI, depending on who you ask, you'll hear one in three. The average searcher will have three LOIs. The average searcher will have four LOIs, five LOIs. That means there's somewhere between a 20 and 33% chance that this is the deal for you. But the flip side means there's somewhere between a 66 and 80% chance that it's not. And so the majority of the time, you're going to be re-entering the world of searching and reactivating your pipeline. And so keeping it going in the background can maximize your probability of success over the course of the search, even though at the moment when you first sign that LOI and it feels like it's the one, that's a really hard thing to do, both mentally because of your excitement for the deal, the LOI you just signed, and because practically you now have to keep your pipeline going while also doing diligence. I'll add that there's an emotional element to this, and there's also a practical benefit to to what you just said, Keith. And that is that you know, if you get if you get so far into a deal and you don't have a pipeline going, there's there's not a lot of optionality, or it feels like there's not a lot of optionality for you at that point. But imagine a world where you're continuing to see interesting companies and talk to business owners. I, I did not, I was not in this experience, so I'm speculating. But I know what I do know is that there were points in my deal where I thought, oh boy, if this thing doesn't happen, I really shot myself in the foot, and I don't have anybody else to talk to, you know, any other pipeline right now. Whereas I can imagine the flip side is if you do have a pipeline, not only emotionally do you feel a little more secure, but also I think it would help you preserve objectivity, which is difficult as a searcher. That's a great point, Ryan. Not, I fully agree. Preserving objectivity is much easier when you have other options, but it also provides a basis for comparison. 
you can look at the deal you have in front of you relative to the other options on the table. So it's not just the 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 emotional, well, I, my search isn't dead if this doesn't happen. It's also the practical, well, I'm digging into an industry. And I know, Alex, you talked to, to Aaron and Kevin recently about industry, right? And you're, you're deep in that industry. If other companies within that industry are popping, you can compare that to the one that you're currently looking at and know, you know, am I, am I doing a, a deal that's good? And with any point along the spectrum of complete focus on the deal versus, you know, managing your pipeline to the fullest extent, anywhere in the middle, there has to be some sacrifice where tasks either on the pipeline side or the deal side get set aside for the other half of your, of your workflow. So within kind of the, that deal process, if you want to manage your pipeline, where do you find where do you find space or what task that's set aside from the deal side in order to manage that pipeline? Like where where are the appropriate places to set aside in order to focus on your pipeline? I think it'll really vary by searcher, but but some places that that could be useful. So, well, one on the diligence side, making sure you're spending your time focusing on the things that matter for that deal, right? whether you want to call it your what you need to believe lever or your key bets, just like these are the two to four things that really matter. And I spend my time solving those first rather than spinning your wheels, doing business analysis that regardless of how the answer shakes out, it doesn't really impact your ability or desire to do the deal or not do the deal. So one would be just to keep your diligence very focused. On the search side of things, that's probably a little bit tougher. I think you can continue your outreach at the same clip it, you probably have to lump together calls more often than you were, or maybe the travel suffers a bit, and you're actually going to physically visit sellers of your indiligence. New industry ideation might take a little bit of a pause, but ideally, in a, in a well-structured diligence process, you're getting through business diligence in somewhere between four to six weeks. So forget the confirmatory stuff, but actually, the, is this a good business in a good industry that I want to push forward on? And so you're not talking about a multi-month full pause. The hardest part of the diligence for you is that first four to six weeks. So keeping the pipeline going throughout, but but particularly in that first four to six weeks is the most important. We talked earlier about managing investors. And I think this would be a, a good point to break into managing the internal parties throughout a diligence period with your investors, perhaps being the first bucket to dive into and within any search you might have, you know, eight to 12 to 15 different investors to manage. Ryan would love to start with your experience. How did you kind of think through the, you know, Keith, as you put it, the thematic questions that you're, you're getting from your deal and diligence and working with investors on, on those questions and, and thinking through that process? Sure, I can share my, my experience and, and my process. So I, I admitted an area where I didn't do a very good job, and that was dropping my pipeline. I think investor management through the the diligence and deal process is something that I did do well. So I, you know, I'll share what I did. My my first concept was that I didn't want to try to manage all ten to twelve investors the same. Nor do I think they all expect that. So what I did was when I whenever I had a deal under. LOI or near LOI, I would circulate a brief memo on it and do an initial round of calls. And I would frame those as, hey, I would like to collect your questions. I would like to get your 
assessment on the deal and whether you think it makes sense for me to continue to spend time on this. I think that that I picked up from somebody and I don't know who, but to expect an investor on the first call to, or, hey, are you investing or not? Or would you invest in this deal or not? I think is a arbitrarily high bar. For me, the better question was, is this interesting enough to spend more time on? Or are you, do you think you can kind of, you know, kill this right away? Although I didn't ask that second part explicitly. So anyway, so in those initial calls, kind of what I was saying earlier is you're going to get 10 different questions from each investor and that can feel overwhelming. But if you take a step back and if you were to like word cloud it, you know, as a, as an analogy and extract those themes, you've got some, typically you've got some pretty clear themes like, wow, every single person wants to understand revenue quality. Every single person is concerned about big competitors. Only one person is concerned about the color of the paint, you know, on the building. So I'm going to put that one aside. (laughs) So then with those themes in mind, what I did was I picked three investors and I established a mutual understanding that I was going to work most closely with them. And those three for me had, I kind of wanted to fill three buckets. The first was my lead institutional investor who was going to offer a lot of support and investment experience. The second was whoever was most enthusiastic. And really, that was nothing more than just leveraging their positivity and support. Because you, you, know, you need to find ways to keep your motivation up. And if there's that one investor that just for whatever reason really loves your deal, tapping into that energy can be really powerful. And then the third investor bucket was my most skeptical investor. And that's the person that maybe has a dissenting point of view or is particularly skeptical of the deal. And I wanted to work really closely with them because one, I appreciated that objectivity and I knew that they would sharpen me. And the third was at the time where perhaps, you know, it's not a sales pitch, but at the point where their questions were answered and and perhaps they arrived at a place where they said, well, actually I, I, I do like this deal. That can be a really powerful story to tell amongst the other group of, hey, Alex was particularly skeptical at the beginning because of revenue quality. I worked really closely with him to answer these three questions. We answered them. The analysis is in the appendix. And you know now he's feeling you know, much more positive about the deal. So for me, it was collecting those themes from amongst the whole group, then identifying those three buckets of investors. And when I say mutually agreed, I was very clear. It's like, hey, Keith, I want to work really closely with you specifically on this. And in a world that, you know, can be quite busy, saying things like that can kind of make it clear to somebody like, okay, I, when Ryan calls me or when he emails me, I get it. Like he's relying on me in a special way that, that he may not be relying on some of his other investors for. I think that can create partnership that's really powerful as you're trying to navigate a deal to close. And you said this was before submitting an LOI. This brought the 10 calls or so. It depends. I think that's situational. So I I wouldn't say one's better than the other. I think if you feel like it's time to get your investors input on something, then that's the right time. For me, there were two opportunities. One of them, I did not do a round of calls until after the LOI was signed. The other, I brought before the LOI was signed. Was there a speed element there too, where maybe it's there's some 
time pressure to put an LOI together and calls would take more time than you, you would ideally have? No, I, I don't, I, you know, my, my data set is small, so I'm just relying on my experience. I, there's definitely some time pressure from the other party to get an LOI, you know, put up or shut up, so to speak. But I never felt like I couldn't get all that done in the inappropriate amount of time. So no, I don't think that was a consideration for me. Keith, I'd love to hear some of your breadth of experience across multiple deals for investor management and communications and sharing materials, questions, all that work. Yeah, absolutely. So I think Ryan hit hit one point pretty well, which is don't try to manage all of your investors throughout the diligence process. That that's not the best use of your time. We've already talked about having to make time to keep the pipeline up, make time to do diligence. And so trying to manage your eight, 10, 12, 15 investors, whatever the number is, in a fully engaged way throughout the entire entire diligence process is really tough. So to Ryan's point, would suggest working with folks who can engage and lean in, whether that's they have a lot of experience doing diligence on companies or they have specific industry experience for that the deal that you're currently working on, just making sure that you're working with a a subset of folks who can help you get to the right answer. So that's part one. Part two is to bring all your investors along. Just because you're not deeply engaging with them on weekly calls to hear their questions and sharing all the analysis doesn't mean you want to go dark and show up at the end with a fully baked cake and say, here's the cake, do you want to eat it? Right. Bring them along for, for learning purposes and to be able to ask questions Along the way, that that's really important too to maximize your probability of of getting a deal done. But at the end of the day, I would I would just reemphasize this sort of underwriting and figuring out is this the right deal for you? Is this a good industry? Is this a good company? Is the most important thing. And to that end, not all questions are created equal. So be sure to Ryan's point to prioritize which questions you're trying to answer. But also, it as much as great as it is when your entire investor group participates. That's not a goal in and of itself. There might ultimately be people who say they're not interested and that's okay. You're just sort of seeking the truth relative to your underwriting case. And some people will agree with that and some people will respectfully disagree and that's okay. What you want to make sure is you're getting to the right answer for you in an intellectually honest fashion. And Alex, I can touch on that second piece about bringing your investors along because I completely agree with that, that philosophy and that priority. And maybe I can just offer how I did that through my deal. So I laid out a document for my investors that said, here are my key questions and my diligence priorities. And then here are the set of activities that I'm taking to address those. So I'll use a specific example. My business has capital expenditures more than the typical search business. And so one of the key questions from investors was, is this a capital intensive business or not? And is it, does that, does the, an, you know, the answer will decide whether it's attractive. So the line of work there was kind of a unit economics analysis of for every dollar of CapEx that we spend, what's the return on that? And periodically I would, you know, let's just, it wasn't a, it wasn't a strict cadence, but when it made sense to report back on some of those findings, I would. And I would lay out as a reminder, here are the key bets and here are, here's the work stream. And then 
the next two pages are the answer to that first one. And, you know, I'll send this back, back again and so on. And what was really happening was the incremental creation of my SIM, the document that you circulate at the end that sort of is the whole viewpoint of the company. And by the, my goal was that by the time all my investors saw my SIM, they had probably seen 60% of it already in chunks over time. So it was largely the same format, the same answers. So that was one piece of bringing investors along over time, was grounding them in the framework that I was using and what the key questions were. And then over time, incrementing up the answers to those. Then one other thing I did towards the end of my deal, let's just call it maybe the last four weeks, was I actually held a weekly live Zoom call with all of my investors. They were all invited to attend. It was optional, so some didn't. And what I would do is I would stand up in front of my group, so to speak, and I would give them some live updates, and then I would answer questions live in front of the group. And the reason for this was twofold. One, there is a time, you know, as the deal gets towards the end, there's definitely time pressure, and it was much more efficient to do this call all together and get all the, you know, get the questions answered in real time and then circulate at FAQ afterwards. I think also there's a there's a credibility building piece to it that happens, which is I'm willing to stand up in front of my group and take questions live. And I'm where I know the answer, I'll be confident. Where I don't know the answer, I'll be honest. And I got quite a I got a lot of positive feedback at the end of that process that it was efficient and effective. So just another way that you can bring your investors along because one thing to consider is that, you know, to a certain extent as a searcher, you're being evaluated too through this deal process, right? How how much confidence do I have that this individual can go and run this business? So I felt a little bit of that. And I think so for the searchers out there, consider doing some kind of live call towards the end of your deal for those reasons. It worked for me. You mentioned a couple of things, you mentioned a live call with investors, circulating an FAQ afterwards building a SIM. I'd, I'd be curious just on the communication piece with the broader investor group, not just with the the three or four or so investors that you're doing the most communication with, which sounds like a lot of that can be ad hoc as well as, as a recurring meeting. What, what cadence worked well for you in communicating with the broader investor group and in what formats? Like early on, was it more email, less call or less of a live together calls versus near the end? Like what cadence has worked for you? Yeah. And I think that it's important to say that this is what worked for me, but you know, it may not work for everybody. The way that I circulated information for the mo- majority of the deal was via, via email and documents. And I tried to follow generally good you know, communication principles of making sure that the headline was up front, that there was ample context, and that there was clearly presented analysis and and answers to questions, right? You don't want your investors to have to put together a science experiment or a puzzle to figure out what you're trying to tell them. But it was mostly just circulated via email and with no particular follow-up on my end, just sort of like, hey, this is for your information. And rather than an arbitrary cadence of, okay, I'm going to do this weekly or every two weeks or what have you, I, I did it on a as needed basis. 
And I don't, you know, there's probably pros and cons to that. But what I didn't want to do was update theater, if you will, of, hey, I've been diligencing for two weeks. I don't have a lot to say, but I'm going to send you an update anyway, because I felt like it would dilute the, you know, the, it would dilute my message as opposed to setting an expectation that if, if Ryan is emailing you about his deal, he has something to tell you and he's going to be respectful of your time and make it easy for you to understand. I think that's, that to me was the better expectation to set. So to answer your question, that probably ended up being like a maybe three to four week cadence at the beginning, but then it starts to neck down into a more frequent, you know, weekly cadence of those live calls. So that, that's what worked for me. I love the, the phrase update theater. I've never heard that before. And one day I'm going to use that. Close cousins with metrics theater, which is what happens on the company side. <laughs> I love that too. Keith on cadence, what, what, has made, what has made sense and worked for other deals you've seen with investor communications as a broader group? I think Ryan makes a great point. You want to keep people in the know, particularly when there's new things to know that enables them to, to continue to learn alongside of you. You also want to make sure that you bite-size it because going dark for two and a half weeks and then saying, here's 41 pages of my learnings over the last two weeks is a lot harder to digest than maybe two or three shorter, punchier messages that help bring the group along. And so it varies, but to Ryan's point, every two weeks, week early on, I call it two weeks early on, but that accelerates over time. So I think that's really, that's a good, a good measure there. On the, the people you're working closely with to get to the, the answer, the people you're working most closely with on underwriting, I would more strongly recommend ad hoc for that experience because as you're learning, waiting for some scheduled call on a Friday, if you've got a key learning on a Tuesday, means you're losing three days of something, right? Whether that's collaboration or a different path you could be running on, or even if the, that was a deal killer and you should be walking away from the deal Again, with time as your most valuable resource as a searcher, making sure that you're keeping in close contact as you learn is very important for you for that that core group. I was very focused, Keith, you bring up a good point. I was very focused on kind of the broader group, but answering the same question for your the folks you're working with more closely, it's it's it would be hard for me to characterize what that was like because it was so connected at the hip, so to speak, and ad hoc. And and I mean, I'm incredibly grateful to the folks that were sitting sidecar with me during the deal on that. But I agree with you that for the folks you're working more closely with, an organic natural cadence probably emerges depending on where you're at in the deal. Before moving on to external parties, legal, accountants, any tech diligence, is there work with your investors prior to closing on the company around thinking about how your board might be constructed or I, what, what amount of effort with designing your board is too preemptive given that, Keith, as you mentioned, there's like a 20, 30% chance this is actually the deal that closes versus waiting till close before thinking about your board and who that would, who that would look like. Yeah, great, great question. We could probably do an entire episode on, on board construction and, and high-performing boards, but to, to more... To answer the, the more narrowly focused question, 
you probably want to start thinking about board toward the end of business diligence. Because for those four first four to six weeks, you're very focused on figuring out the company, the industry, and really underwriting the what you need to believe to see if this is a deal that you want to pursue. If it is, that's when you have to start thinking about, okay, we're going to go through confirmatory diligence, ultimately get the deal closed. Who's going to best set me up for success as a first-time CEO in this business? And so that doesn't necessarily mean it's the people who worked most closely with you on the deal. It probably does because you've probably picked someone who you've been very close to or is a large investor or has industry experience, but that is not necessarily a one-to-one trade-off. It might not even mean someone who's directly in your group if there's expertise either in the, the search fund community or in the broader industry at large that could be really useful. Because what you're, what you're doing here is you're building the bench, the team that's going to support you in the day-to-day. Not that they're going to be talking to you day-to-day, but they're going to be closer to you than your other investors are. And so a good board will, will have an operator to help you really think through how to be a, a first-time CEO, a good capital allocator, which is more than just broad capital structure decisions, but really how do you think about allocating capital within the business, part of which is capital structure, and some industry expert someone who has experience either in the business model or the industry. Those don't necessarily need to be three distinct people, but those are the three roles you're seeking to fill within your board. And so thinking about that framework as you exit business diligence and move toward closing the deal through confirmatory diligence is probably the right timing to to start building that framework and working closely with the folks you've been talking to throughout diligence. Yeah, I agree. There's definitely a, a full episode on boards to be had there for sure. Ryan, in thinking about managing external parties, I like the thoughts you shared earlier around tying the messaging you have with your external parties to the key bets, key priorities, and keeping that framework consistent across all the parties you're working with on any given deal. How do you relate those key bets to folks who run maybe the more structured parts of diligence, like the Q of E and whatnot? Yeah, I think just like your investors, you want to contextualize for them what the business does, why you're interested in it, and within their scope of diligence, whether any of your key bets fall there or whether there are particular parts of the diligence that are really important to you. And so I'll use, I'll use tech due diligence as an example with my business. When, when I was buying RDC, software is a big part of our business, but it's not our product. So we offer a tech-enabled service. We have a proprietary piece of software that powers that. So it's important, but it's not the product. And so sitting with my tech diligence provider and saying, hey, look, let me explain to you what we do. Let me, let me talk to you about how software plays a part. Let me talk to you about what I'm not worried about, meaning we're not trying to sell this product like this software, meaning I'm not trying to like bundle this up and sell it to customers. But what I do need to know is that this thing works rock solid because if it stops working, the business grinds to a halt. So shaping it for them in that way is really important because you could imagine a a tech due diligence provider that does 10 SaaS diligences a, a week kind of applying the same framework. Now, these are all smart people, but again, this is just about aligning on what the most important things are. And then I think the further part was that in my business, one of the key bets was we've got a lot of concentrated experience and a few key people on the technical software side of the business. 
and I'd like your assessment on their abilities, how well the thing is documented, et cetera. So just, I think you can kind of get them, you know, accelerated on the most important stuff pretty quickly. Keith, you've talked about confirmatory diligence being kind of this area of the deal process, confirming kind of the other key questions you answered earlier to the themes around key bets and whatnot. Can you dive into that just a little bit more? It'd be interesting to hear your thoughts on what what are the questions that QV and legal tech are actually answering for you? And it's not necessarily related to the key bets that you're making. Just to just reiterate what we talked about a bit earlier, the most important diligence you'll do in this process is the business and industry diligence. If that doesn't hit the bar, then third-party diligence, tech diligence, legal diligence, accounting, it doesn't really matter. This is confirmatory, right? This is, for everything I can see, this is a business I want to buy. This is, it's well-positioned in its industry, its customers find value. Now let's make sure that all the other things, tech, scalability, the people, the processes, legal, all the various things get tied into legal diligence, Hit just basically check the box. And the questions that those providers care about, to Ryan's point, are not generally the questions you care about, right? You, again, care about industry and company. They care about making sure they can get through their check the box list that they were paid to do. And so launching them too early in a process can actually distract you. We've talked a a couple of times now about how do you manage your time, right? You have your pipeline going, you're doing diligence. One way to manage your time is to also not launch tech diligence, accounting diligence, legal diligence, because they're going to be, they're going to ask questions that you don't necessarily need to know the answer to before moving forward while distracting the sellers with what will be complicated and involved questions. You have two different goals, so to speak, with these diligence providers. They want to get the analysis you're asking them to do. They want to get it done correctly and as fast as possible. You want to get the answers you're looking for while also keeping the seller engaged and happy as you move toward close. And those two things are not necessarily in conflict, but they can be. And so as you seek questions like, is the profitability what we thought it would be? Right? We've done all our industry diligence, our business diligence. We believe the business to be X profitable. Accounting firm, can you confirm EBITDA profitability over the last 12-month period as well as the two years prior? That is a question you need to know. The assumption being that that is true. You've done some business diligence and we're going to trust that what the, the company has given us, but verify it with QV. But it's not the, the key focus of everything you're diving into. Yeah, specifically around legal as well, where there's seemingly endless numbers of terms and questions and ways that the deal could change. Can you talk a little bit about key bets and questions and keeping in a your legal advisor focused and focused on the right things and knowing when it's okay to not give up, but just be be okay with certain terms or how things go and while keeping at that focus. It really varies by situation. So what are the things the lawyers are digging into? They tend to be things like, are the contracts you've signed with customers enforceable? Right? The, the term limits, what does it allow you to do on pricing? They'll do some diligence to make sure that you're not violating any IP if it's a software product. They'll make sure that there's no, or they'll seek to understand any outstanding lawsuits or potential liabilities from the company. So these are the sort of things that the lawyers have a very long and involved checklist that the company will find very annoying to 
answer and fill out. But those are the, the kinds of things you're digging into. And some of them will matter a lot more than most. And so for instance, if you find out that your contracts with customers are not enforceable for some reason, the terms of those contracts, and it, I'm not talking about some termination for convenience clause that got buried in there, but rather something more unenforceable at a state level or a federal level, that's something that's pretty bad because we've just done a bunch of work about revenue quality only to learn maybe our revenue quality is not what we think it is. So that feels like one that's tougher to live with than, hey, they have some outstanding liability on XYZ. We'll just make sure that we document that really well in the APA. And if that liability comes to fruition, the seller needs to pay it versus us, right? And so it's always good to think about as a searcher, which of these are existential to the underwriting that actually impact the what I need to believe that could change the way in which I can pull all those levers and hit all those or statements versus we'll just need to make sure this is documented really well in the final agreement. I don't have a lot of specificity to add to Keith's answer, but I think one thing that comes to mind just about when you start to manage external parties more broadly is that when you're doing business or commercial diligence, you're the one that's in the driver's seat, right? As the searcher, you're the diligencer. When you start to engage external parties, you give you put them in the driver's seat, and so you're getting a tremendous amount of information feedback back to you. And my observation, as I reflect on r- having run my business the last couple of years and, and on my search, is that was an early opportunity for me to practice the ability to read signal from noise. And what I mean is, you hire a high-power accounting firm to do a quality of earnings there's a tremendous amount of information coming back at you. And as a searcher, you say, oh, wow, okay. I guess a bunch of these receivables are way, you know, have to be written off and that's not on their books. Well, is that signal or is that noise, right? Versus, wow, we just found out that they've been calculating cost of goods completely wrong. And that has a material impact on what these financial statements look like. That's probably more signal than it is noise, and that might be something you spend more time on. So you multiply that across accounting, legal, tech, regulatory, whatever it is. I think it's important as a searcher to know that there's going to be a wave, and you have to be really thoughtful about picking out what matters and what doesn't. Yeah, that's a good framework to have, especially when it comes to managing sellers, which is probably the last chunk for our conversation and managing that seller relationship. And we'll have a whole episode dedicated to managing several seller relationships, but in terms of the diligence and as bumps along the road come through that, that process, what are some ways that are helpful to keep that seller relationship positive? And both of you alluded to the like relationship bank concept, which I, I love and also subscribe to. So would love to hear your thoughts around seller relationships. Yeah, I can I can jump in first on this one, Alex. Since since you alluded to the concept, I'll I'll describe my you know my version of it, which is you call this person out of the blue, and you say, "Hey, I'm Ryan, and I'd like to buy the last 25 years of your life's work and the last 70 years of your family's work," and there's interest and you set off on this journey together to do this deal. And what feels kind of euphoric at the beginning for both sides to sign that LOI and kick it off, you know, those who have done deals know that it 
there's good times and there's bad times in a deal. And so this idea of investing in the relationship bank is that you are making time for the person you're buying the business from to get to know them, to understand what success looks like for them, what are their hopes, fears, dreams. You're sharing all those things as well to the extent that it's appropriate. And you're viewing them as a, as a partner in getting this deal done, not as an adversary. So that's just kind of generally this idea of investing in the relationship bank. So it means traveling to the business, getting to know who their spouse or children are, understanding why they're selling, all these other things. And the idea is that while the times are good, you're making those investments. Because when the times are not good and there's a materially bad finding in diligence or you have to renegotiate the networking capital peg or whatever it is, rather than some nameless, faceless automaton that's trying to buy a business, you are Ryan, the guy from Virginia with three kids and a wife and, you know, dreams of running a business. And wow, we like the same restaurants and we root for the same sports teams. There's just a tremendous amount of importance in building a real relationship that, that is going to last the, what can, is often a tumultuous experience. I totally agree with Ryan there. I, I think it's important to remember that the relationship bank you have with your seller and the uh, making ongoing deposits into that relationship bank, it's an ongoing exercise, not a moment in time exercise. And so one key pitfall we sometimes see is people put a lot of really good energy and effort into developing a seller relationship and establishing that relationship bank and making frequent deposits. And then the LOI gets signed and all of a sudden, all right, I'm in diligence transaction mode, head down. I'm only going to ask the seller hard questions and really try to make it, not trying, but it'll feel like they're sort of picking apart the seller's business rather than consistently reminding them, no, I'm Ryan from Virginia with three kids and I'm just trying to, to seek the truth, not trying to do anything one way or the other. Because at the end of the day, yes, the owner is selling you their business at some price, but there's a lot of places they could have gotten that price or higher and they're choosing to sell to you. And the more you act like nameless, faceless private equity who signs an LOI and goes straight into head down diligence mode, the more you act like that, the more likely you are to have a problem at the end when you go to make a withdrawal from that relationship bank and find out that your balance is zero, right? That's how you, you're bankrupt. And so just keeping your, just con consistently reminding yourself you're not just buying a business, you're also forging a relationship. And you can do that with, go to dinner with them. Don't even talk about the diligence process. Talk to them about what they're going to do after they retire or what you're so excited about or the, what happened on the sports, you know, the event that of the team you both like or whatever it might be. Like, just make sure to continue making those deposits and, and don't forget that there's a human on the other side as well. My, my advice would be that you approach the, the, there's a place for, for mechanics and, 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 and a sort of deliberate nature in this. And then there's a place for just being a human and, a, and being genuine. And what I mean is I deliberately planned out all of my trips down to Austin, Texas to visit RDC. And I was very thoughtful about how often they were and where they hit. So, okay, right before we kick off Q of V, because that's going to be stressful, I'm going to be there in person. Right before we negotiate a seller note, I'm going to be there in person. All of that was very methodical. But when I got there and we went out to dinner, I didn't have a script. 
I wasn't trying an angle. It was like just two guys going and grabbing a steak and a beer and having conversation. So I think, you know, to say it again, you should be methodical and thoughtful about this. But then when you're in the moment and you're actually engaging with this person, you know, if you have too much of an angle or if it's, or if you're not genuinely curious and interested in them, I think that will come off. So you've got to figure out how to get your, get yourself there. And then as those bumps in the road come up inevitably throughout your deal process, how, how do you communicate those with your, with the seller? What's the, where's effective ways you've found to mitigate some of the the stress of, of bumps? Yeah, I think I would, I would encourage folks to put, put themselves in the other person's shoes. And I mean, just to, I'm going to make up some numbers, but orders of magnitude, you know, imagine you're, you've just run a business for 25 years where now you've got $20 million of personal wealth tied up into it. And it's hinging on a 30 year old buying your business. Right. Like, do you want a text message at 10 PM on a Friday saying, Hey, Alex, bad news. Q of E didn't come back with the EBITDA number that we thought. Let's touch base on Monday. No, of course you wouldn't. Right. That's a $20 million text message. So I think understanding the stakes for the other individual are different, but probably just as high as they are for you and thinking about, okay, is this a, is this an email? Right. Like an FYI. Hey, we found out this, not a big deal. Just letting you know. Or is this, is this like a phone call or potentially is it let's meet in person? And I had each throughout my deal. And the, the one in particular was we reached an impasse on our seller note and it was the evening on a Wednesday and I called my, the gentleman I was buying the business from and I said, Barry, I'm going to be there tomorrow because we need to sit down and talk about this face to face. And I know that we can figure out a path through this, but I don't think we're going to be able to do it over the phone. And so I I think you have to read the situation according to the gravity of, of, you know, what the finding is or what the decision is or so on. Yeah. I I agree with Ryan. I think bumps will always exist there. There's no such thing as a smooth deal, but I would, you know, on the bright side, we've never seen bumps kill a deal if there's been investment in that relationship bank. Because at the end of the day, it's a $20 million crystallization for the seller. And the point of contention could be large, but more likely it's $100,000, but on a, on a seemingly sensitive topic, right? And so putting it all into perspective and helping the seller understand that you're not trying to be, again, private equity and reduce what you're trying to give them. You're just being fair is really important. And it's really, it's much easier for a seller to believe Ryan is treating me fairly when I know Ryan, the individual, but when it's Ryan, the 30 year old trying to be a private equity firm, telling me that we need to talk about a seller note, it can feel much more like Ryan's word earlier, adversarial, like he's trying to take from me, not just get to the fair solution. And so, you know, bumps in the road will happen but invest in that relationship bank can really minimize, you know, any fallout that could otherwise occur. I'd like to add just one thing, which is as a searcher, there's temptation all around you to like shirk responsibility and what, when there's bad news. And what I mean is, you know, if you think about the cast of characters in a deal, there's, 
your, you know, East Coast, West Coast investors. And I'm being, you know, I'm being kind of snarky because that's how some of, you know, a lot of these folks selling their business can think about these things. But you've got East Coast, West Coast investors. You've got an attorney from a national brand name law firm. There's a Q of E firm, sometimes from a national firm, right? There's all these people. And I definitely felt sometimes when there was bad news to want to say things like, well, look, my lawyer's telling me I can't do that. Or, you know, my Keith is, my, my investor Keith doesn't like this part of it. I think that undermines really who you are, which is this is your deal to get done. And you're the entrepreneur and you're the one leading this process. And to the extent that you shirk responsibility and push it off, I think that undermines your credibility and it undermines that relationship bank, but it's really hard. And that's why I'm, t- I'm saying it is that it's really hard when you're a searcher. But the real point here is that to your, to your question, Alex, of like, how do you know how to communicate these things, et cetera, is that it can be really easy to let other stakeholders in the deal get in between you and your seller. So it can be easy to allow the purchase agreement to bat back and forth between lawyers. It can be really easy to allow the accountants to, you know, ask questions and dig in in ways that might be disruptive to the relationship. So I think keeping yourself front and center in the relationship as a searcher is the real point of the last, you know, minute of me talking about it. Yeah. Make sure it's, it's you and the seller against everybody else, not you guys against one another. Yeah. That's well put Keith. Yep. I love that. Well, thank you both for coming on the podcast and walking through all these concepts and ideas on running a good process. So thank you both for sharing your time. I'm excited to see this one published and get some feedback. Thank you, Alex. Appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks, Alex. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's episode of Think Like an Owner. If you enjoyed the show, please consider leaving us a review and telling a friend to help more folks find Think Like an Owner. I also want to thank our show's sponsors, Hood and Strong, Oberly Risk Strategies, and Ravix Group for supporting the podcast. For full episode transcripts on our weekly newsletter, please visit our website at tlaopodcast.com. 